and welcome to The Why Podcast, a new series from Think at London Business School in which faculty talk about their research and what it means for you and your business. I'm your host, Cathy Brewis, and for this episode, my guest is Andrew Scott, Professor of Economics at London Business School. He's the co-author with Linda Grattan of the best-selling book, The Hundred Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity, and its sequel, The New Long Life, a framework for flourishing in a changing world. Both of those books explored the changes wrought by the fact that our average life expectancy is so much higher than it used to be. And so our working lives and our lives outside of work are impacted by this demographic shift. And they looked at what people can do to make the most of their lives, know that they're going to live so much longer, and also what organisations can do differently. Today, we're going to be talking about his paper in the journal Nature Ageing on the economic value of targeting ageing which he wrote with Martin Ellison, Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford, and David Sinclair, Professor of Genetics at Harvard Medical School. They set out to look into whether it might be better, rather than focusing resources on age-related diseases, if instead we focused on tackling ageing itself. Andrew, thanks so much for coming here today. Tell me, why did you want to write this paper? Well, there's a number of reasons why. I mean, one was just I enjoy working with different people from different disciplines. And so it's great to work with Martin, who is a co-author of mine from the economic world around fiscal policy and monetary policy. And then David Sinclair, who's a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, is doing a most extraordinary work around understanding the biological pathways of ageing and wrote a breathtaking book called Lifespan. So that was fun. But uh, as you're probably aware, my focus in my research is around longevity. And it's about trying to understand what to do with this longer lifespan. And in particular, focusing not just on end of life, but all of life. And there's a lot of focus on what's called an aging society. And for me, an aging society is about a change in the age structure of the population. Because of a declining birth rate and people living for longer, there's fewer younger people and more old people. And it's amazing how negative people are about that. You know, we, it's, no one looks forward to getting old. This can be a burden on the economy. Everyone just says this is a problem. I'm really focused on what I call a longevity society, which rather than focus on there being more old people relative to young, says, well, actually, the real change is that now the young can expect to become the very old. And that's a different way of looking at things, because it focuses upon all of life, and I think it's more positive. You know, one of the great achievements of the 20th century was getting more people to live longer lives in better health. And so how can we make that a positive? And one of the ways I wanted to look at that was through an economic lens. And there's three different ways you can think about how longevity has economic benefits. One is what does it mean for GDP? So in the book, The Hundred Year Life, you know, I talk about people working for longer and being employed for longer. And if you look at the labour market, you know, the 10 years before COVID, the majority of employment gains in high income countries all came from people working beyond 55. So it's a really important driver. But there's a lot of complexity in trying to model how GDP responds to longevity. So I'm pursuing that. Another way is to say, well, okay, let's imagine if we age more healthily, then the government will save lots of money, the health costs will be less. But the one I really wanted to do was to use standard economic tools, which put a dollar value on health gains. Now, that may sound extraordinary. How do we put a dollar value on being healthy? But I wanted to try and apply those tools to the issue of healthy longevity and see what sort of numbers we came up with to see just how important it is to age well. And just as a little bit of background, of course, 
this paper was started before COVID. But just look at what major economies have done during COVID. They introduced policies that lower GDP in order to save lives. And it's really important, I think, to recognise that health is just valuable in its own right. We don't have to justify being healthy in terms of, oh, it's good for GDP. Or we don't have to justify being healthy because it reduces the NHS budget. It's worthwhile spending money to be healthy. And I wanted to put a dollar value on that because the most important thing is our health. And as we live longer, that creates some new challenges. That's why I wanted to write this paper. So I really like the idea that this is something for younger people to think about as well. It's it's sort of health and well-being for all of us having these longer lives and it's not a kind of us and them issue. So how did you go about examining all of this through an economics lens? Right, so there's sort of a couple of things that we did. Governments already have various tools. They're called quality-adjusted life years. And so, for instance, in the UK, the NHS says you can buy a drug if you can buy one of these quality-adjusted life years for less than £30,000. So there's various ways that governments set health budgets and determine what to spend money on. So what I did was use an approach which is called the value of statistical life, which is relatively standard in thinking how much a government spend on various different health measures that improve life. And now the key thing about the value of a statistical life is that statistical part because you know no one's going to say well how much do i need to give you in order for you to you know, be killed or something so what we look at is what if i lower the risk say of someone dying by one percent how much is that worth and of course let's imagine that that number came out to be a hundred thousand pounds where if a one percent reduction in mortality is worth a hundred thousand pounds then 100 times that tells you how much the value of a statistical life is. So that would arrive at a number of about 10 million. So the trick is in economics then to find different ways in which people reveal their preferences through their actions. And you can then use that to place a value on how they think about their health and also about their life expectancy. So there's those tools and they're a little bit elaborate. I mean, there's a lot going on in the background because of course, if you're thinking about people living longer, then they're gonna have to work for longer. And we don't like to work, we prefer not to work, but we also like to have a standard of living, which means we need to get consumption, we have to finance longer lives. So there's an economic model that says, okay, you as an individual effectively make your decisions about your careers, your savings, your spending, your education, based upon how long you think your life is and what your health is going to be. And we then play around with different scenarios about making people live longer, keeping them healthier for longer, and then use these VSL models to calculate what is called a willingness to pay measure. And effectively, the willingness to pay measure is the change in the value of statistical life. So you can work out how much people are prepared to pay or would be willing to pay, um, how valuable health gains are. So, you know, a simple example this would be looking at COVID and saying, well, governments decided to lower GDP by 5% to save this many lives. That would be a way of working out what the value of a statistical life was. People can get slightly queasy, can't they? This idea of putting a monetary value on these things. They do, and I can see why. I mean, none of us likes to, to, to do this. I mean, I think in one of Oscar Wilde's plays, he sort of says a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing, and there's a great danger in doing that. The trouble is also in that same play, I think there's this comment about a sentimentalist who says they put an enormous value on everything and then can't decide what to do. So, you know, governments, when they have to allocate health budgets, know that they have to restrain health expenditure. 
So I think you've got to be careful how you use these tools and which mm. questions you look at. But they're a logical way of coming up with a valuation. And I think always with any economic model, there's sort of two ways to look at the results. One is to take it and say, oh, wow, yes, that's the number. But I think it's always worth taking those with a pinch of salt. I think the other thing is to say, wow, is it a big number or a small number? What's the relative ranking and what does it all mean? And I think, at least in our paper, if you look at both of them together, the, the detailed dollar numbers we come up with, but also the broad insights, I think it's pretty hard to argue other than healthy aging is really, really important. Uh, you know, the subtitle of the paper is All's Well That Ages Well. And that's really the punchline of the paper, which is that in this new life where the young can expect to become old, we have a new health imperative, which is to age well. And it's worth an awful lot of money. I mean, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions, trillions of dollars. And the punchline makes sense, because when I talk to people about living longer, they often say, well, I worry about getting ill. And of course, the flip side of that is then the most important thing is to be healthy, and productive, engaged and happy during this long life, which is kind of why our numbers come out to be so big. So you came up with four different models, life extension, compressing morbidity, slowing ageing, and then the one where ageing is potentially reversed. They have these great colourful titles, which makes it much easier for a layperson like me to find their way through the paper. So the first one, life extension, you talk about the Strulberg, like in Gulliver's Travels. So these are beings who are born immortal, but keep on ageing. So you get older and older and older with your health getting worse and worse, but living forever. Yeah. And so the Strulberg one's an obvious one to begin with. So in, in our model, we've really got two things that are going to drive your your health. One is the relationship between your mortality rate and your age. And, you know, we know that as we get older, mortality rates rise. But the reason we've been living longer is that the rate at which mortality increases with age has slowed. So that we're living longer and longer. Mortality rates are lower at nearly every age now. So the other thing we're going to have in our analysis is a relationship between your health and your age. And, of course, the other thing we know about ageing as you get older you tend to get what are called frailties increasing. So you you might have problems, cardiovascular problems, you might have arthritis, your mobility may get worse. So we've got both of these relationships, health as a function of age and mortality as a function of age. And we look at different combinations of improving the relationship of mortality and health with your chronological age. So the first one we look at is Strulberg, as you say, from Gulliver's Travels. And in Gulliver's Travel, Strudberg really goes to town in saying how horrible Strudberg is. What he's really saying is that, you know, whilst we all want, might want to live a long time, none of us want to get old. And what happens under Strudberg is that basically you're, you're immortal, so that your mortality rate isn't increasing with age. So you've removed any relationship between chronological age and mortality. But your health deteriorates with age in exactly the same way as it does now. So you have these longer lives, but it's an ever diminishing health and you know really i think what the strudberg point is saying is that for most of human history we've welcomed increases in life expectancy as a good thing but that's because it was about lowering infant mortality it was about lowering midlife mortality so most of the years of extra life were in good health but there will come a point and for swift it was at the age of 80 where living beyond that is just bad and it's horrible the picture he paints of uh, the Strudbergs. so the first thing we look at is the Strudberg case let's imagine you just lower mortality rate at each age but how our health deteriorates doesn't change so you get more time but 
it's it's ever diminishing poor health. And many people, by the way, think this is a good model for what's happened. We have a hospital system that's really based around intervening when people get ill, as opposed to keeping them well. And so, you know, we survive various unpleasant illnesses, but in ever diminishing health. So that really, you know, as one academic says, what's really been slowed down is not the aging process, but the dying process. So this is a world where your life expectancy increases, but healthy life expectancy isn't. And we look at that and actually, you know, using our model, we say, actually, you know, for all the bad things we might say about it, living a longer life is good. But of course, you're going to get ever diminishing values because each year is an ever poorer health. So you do benefit from more time. Having a longer life has benefits across all your life. You know, you can do things differently if you're living a longer life. But of course, if each of those additional years is in poorer health, you put a lower value on that. And then there's another problem with it, which of course means in earlier in life, you have to work more in order to provide resources for this later years. So you get more time, it's good. The years though are in declining health and the years where I'm healthy, I'm gonna have to work a little bit more to fund these longer lives. So on balance, it's a good thing, but it's not as attractive as many other cases we look at. No, that doesn't sound appealing at all, Andrew. So what about the second model? This is the Dorian Gray case, based obviously on Oscar Wilde's story about a man who makes a pact with the devil that he just won't age at all. But unknown to his friends, there's this horrible painting in the attic that's getting older and older. Yeah, so there's a Chicago scholar called Jay Olshansky. So the problem we've got is as we shift life expectancy more and more into older years, and I want to stress that you know the majority of life expectancy gains now are happening because you've got a greater chance of living into your 80s and 90s. So we really are seeing life expectancy gains in the years where frailty starts to increase. And I also want to just say a comment on the frailty. The most notable thing about aging is how diverse it is. And, you know, I'm saying here that frailty increases with age and people in their 80s and 90s tend to have more frailties. But it is stunning if you look at the data, uh, just how different people are. And I've been doing some work looking at UK data at the moment, and the, the 10% healthiest 90-year-olds are substantially healthier than the 10% least healthy 50-year-olds. So there's an awful lot of variation in this aging process. Uh, I don't want to be sort of too negative about it. But if we are having more and more years of life, and they're occurring in years which are in poorer health, there's another opportunity, which is rather than lower the mortality rate for each age, keep that fixed so life expectancy doesn't change, but just increase our health at every age. Let's slow down the rate at which frailties develop. And so what that's happening there is you're compressing morbidity, you're reducing the red zone. You're saying to people, you can live longer, but it's going to be in better health. So that's where healthy life expectancy starts to catch up with life expectancy. So we don't live to infinity, but we're just aging better and better. In the extreme, if all those years of life are made healthy, then basically you die young just at an old age. Yeah. And I mean, that doesn't sound too bad apart from this horrible moment of reckoning at the end before you die. Well, that's right. That's the one I wasn't <laughs> quite sure about using Dorian Gray for that purpose. People are uneasy about the idea of living a lot longer. And Dorian Gray says, no, we're not going to do anything about that. We're just going to make you healthier for longer. And of course, that taps into that great fear everyone has of aging old. And, you know, one of the problems we do have is we're very negative about aging, which 
is a bit weird um, because the, you know, it's kind of better than the alternative most of the time. And the sort of modern focus on youth is, I think, a striking one, which has started to undermine some concepts of old age. And of course, Dorian Gray is all about being young forever and having the opportunity to follow your passions and uh, uh, and lust, as it were. Cicero wrote about one of the great features of old age is actually you're less driven by your emotions and your need for sensation, and you become happier and wiser, which, of course, is what happens at the end of Dorian Gray, where he just wants to es escape this trap. But putting all that sort of to one side, what the Dorian Gray scenario in our paper about is just maintaining health. And of course, it's enormously valuable. We find, in fact, that if you look at the US right now, at least according to our calculations, it's much more important to achieve a full compression of morbidity than it is to increase life expectancy anymore. Although another year of life expectancy is good, the US currently has 78.9 years of uh, life expectancy. The most important thing is to make sure health span matches lifespan. And, you know, our calculations say that before we get any more increases in life expectancy, closing the gap, making sure that we're healthier for longer is the most important thing. So that's a great insight. I mean, perhaps this is to be expected. Of course, the paper puts some numbers on it. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars worth to us as individuals from aging better. But of course, it is about aging better later in life. And you said earlier, you know, this thing about longevity, it's, it's about the young becoming the old. All these gains are evaluated at younger ages because if for the first time ever the young can expect to become the old, the really important thing is to be healthy for as long as possible. And you don't start being healthy in old age when you're old. It's something that has to happen earlier. Right. And then you look at another model, the Peter Pan case. So in this one, you have simultaneous improvements in health and mortality. So you're basically forever young, you're going to live forever and enjoy really great health. I was wondering, so some of that biological age is to do with lifestyle factors, of course. But then there's also this genetic component to it, isn't there? One of the things that's become more apparent to me, and it's obviously you know, why I was keen to work with David Sinclair, is that as we live longer, we need to shift our focus away from treating illness to being healthy. That also means shifting our focus away from single illnesses to thinking about aging itself. So let's step back a little bit. I said earlier that, you know, Stroberg is about lowering mortality for every age. Dorian Gray is about improving your health at every age. But let's think about not chronological age, which is how we tend to define being old but biological age. I said earlier that, you know, if you look at older people, there's an enormous variety in, in their health. That's because biological age is not the same for everyone at the same chronological age. And this concept of biological age is sort of like a system and this sort of cellular and molecular decline, which drives an aging process. And what this does is then create challenges. So, for instance, you're more likely to get cancer the older you are. You're more likely to get diabetes, to get heart problems. And if you think of the body as a system, then biological age is reflecting the age of the system. And as you get older, little bits of the system stop working very well, which then puts pressure on other parts of the system. And so aging starts to accelerate. So the question is, can we understand that biological aging process? And that's what David works in, in his lab with uh, uh, mice and yeast. And can we slow down the aging process? And of course, by slowing down the aging process, that's about slowing down 
biological age. You can slow down biological age. So can we improve the relationship between biological and chronological age? Oh, yeah. So this is the Wolverine case, which you've named after the Marvel character who can regenerate his organs and his daughters, I think. So here you're literally reversing ageing. Someone's becoming younger and younger. Well, Absolutely. So we know the socioeconomic circumstances. So we know, for instance, that uh, there are huge and growing inequalities in health. So in the US, the difference between the bottom end of the income distribution and the top end of the income distribution is something like 14 years of life expectancy. Similarly, in the UK, you can see enormous differences in healthy life expectancy. So socioeconomic circumstances have a big impact. And um, then, of course, there's behaviour. You know, we all know only too well that if we drink too much, smoke too much, don't sleep enough, we don't exercise enough, we eat too much, then we age. So there's all those behavioural factors. Then there's genetics, or what do you actually inherit from uh, your family, which actually probably plays a lesser role now than it used to. And is actually, most estimates suggest that bit's quite small. But then there is the human system of ageing. Uh, evolution's never had much opportunity to improve how we age because it's always focused on reproduction. So our biology is such that we tend to age. So massive amount of work being done the last 20 years in trying to understand the aging process and seeing if we can do something about it. And, you know, it sounds rather science fiction, but some of it is real. Good news if you're a worm or a mice, it's pretty routine in the lab to um, uh, slow down or even reverse aging and extend life expectancy. Lots of work being done with stem cells. You can regrow uh, various organs. So lots of exciting stuff happening. But of course, the focus then here is on your biological age. So in our paper, we do that in two ways. One is the Peter Pan scenario, where we say, let's slow down the rate at which you age biologically. And that in our simple model, has two impacts. One is mortality rates decline, so you live longer, but also you're healthier for longer. So you get gains to life expectancy and healthy life expectancy. So that's preferable to the Strulberg case and the Dorian Gray model. Yeah. Then there's another case we look at, which David was keen we look at because it's kind of what he does in the lab. Now, remember, all these are all fictional characters we're looking at at the moment. And it does seem rather extraordinary, the notion you can reverse biological aging, and it may be impossible. Uh, David Fernley believes it isn't. But I think in you know, my understanding of these two notions of slowing down biological age versus reversing biological age is that, you know, some people think that actually a bit like a watch, it's easier to rewind a watch than it is to slow a watch down. And that, that may be where we go with this better understanding of the biological process of aging. We're just looking at two logical scenarios. Peter Pan, we slow down the rate at which biological aging occurs. Wolverine, where it gets reversed. To be honest, actually, there's not a great deal of difference in the economics of them both, because they both sort of mean that when you're 70, chronologically, you're healthier than you used to be. There's some differences between them, but not perhaps as great as you might imagine. But what's key about the, the Peter Pan ones and the Wolverine ones is they trade off a synergy, which gets really important as the paper develops, because obviously with Peter Pan, you're getting two benefits. You're getting better health at every age and you're living longer. So, of course, it's preferable to the Dorian Gray and the Strulberg case. But what's interesting is the reason why there's a complementarity, which is that basically the longer you live, the more you value health improvements when you're old. But the healthier you are when you're old, 
the more you value longer life increases. So with Peter Pan, you're getting both. So you're increasing the value of both. There's a really important synergy here. It's absolutely right. If all you're doing, as in Strolberg, is living longer and diminishing health, you don't really want to live longer. But of course, what you see under Dorian Gray is as you get healthier for longer, you get more interested in living longer. And Peter Pan has both of those effects. It exploits these synergies between your health when you're old and then your desire to live longer if you're healthy. And I think it's a really, really important dynamic because, you know, when people say, I don't want to be old, they often thinking about being ill when they're old. But if we can get better at how we age, as we have done the last 20, 30 years, by the way, then actually we want to live a little bit longer. And I suspect that if you ask people 30, 40 years ago how long they want to live for, it would have been a lower number than today. But everyone's always convinced that they don't want to live beyond that. But that's because we have to recognise that age is malleable and that may change our decisions. So you, you talk about that as a, as a sort of virtuous circle, that it, it, if ageing itself can be slowed down, then there'll be more incentive to do that even more because people will see that it's possible to have these longer and healthier lives. I mean, it's an economic model, of course, which has its assumptions, but it completely builds up into that virtuous circle because I've said about the complementarity between health and life expectancy. The other thing which we focus on in the paper is saying, well, at the moment there is research going on to the biology of ageing, but there's massive amounts of research and funding going into dementia and going into cancer, all of which is great because they are horrible diseases that we would like to eradicate or treat better. However, what's, of course, interesting from an economic point of view is that even if you could make great progress with cancer, and we have made significant progress against many cancers, it still doesn't dramatically change life expectancy and actually doesn't dramatically change healthy life expectancy because there's still, as you get older, lots of diseases. There are age-related diseases. This biological process of ageing manifests itself in a number of different illnesses. You get what are called comorbidities. So as you get older, the risk of cancer, heart problems, dementia, diabetes, it increases. And so if biological age is the underlying cause of all of these diseases, if you could focus on treatments that slow down ageing, you get a number of advantages. The first is potentially you're going to reduce the impact of several diseases. So not just one. The second thing is that if, of course, you can reduce the incidence of many diseases, you increase the quality of life. Because it's great if we can reduce the incidence of cancer, but if I've still got dementia, the quality of life is less. So by focusing on the ageing process itself, then we're going to get really big gains because you work across multiple diseases and you improve the quality of life. And of course, what this is really about is just staying healthy for longer. And I think that's the really important thing. We have a health system that was very much focused on infectious diseases. And of course, with COVID, we've been reminded of the power of infectious diseases. But with infectious diseases, we intervene when people get ill. With age-related diseases, it's kind of not great to intervene when people get ill because these are persistent diseases. It's about prevention rather than intervention. And our paper can be seen in many ways, one of which is, wow, wouldn't it be great to get a scientific a treatment that could slow down ageing, which... You know, we put a value on and it's enormous for, you know, for the US. One more year of life, healthy life expectancy through slowing down ageing is worth something like $37 trillion we work it out as. So it's an enormous value. But this is just really saying ageing-related diseases is now the main part of the disease burden in society. More and more of the young can expect to live into their 90s, if not beyond. 
So we now have a new health imperative, which is to age well. But then you pointed out the virtuous circle argument, which is a really key thing, which is that I think we've got a new imperative. When the young will now become old, you have to think about structuring early life to support a good longer life. So we have to do things differently. You know, when the young had a one in six chance of reaching 80, you wouldn't structure your whole life thinking, okay, I've got to look after myself when I'm 80. And by looking after yourself, I mean your health, your relationships, your work, your skills, everything. But now when you've got sort of like a you know 75% chance of reaching 80 or 90 as a young child, you really do need to structure things differently. It really is all's well that ages well. And that's kind of what our model comes up with. And it's not just about the scientific process. It's about education. It's about the things you do. Anything that gives you an advantage in aging better. And some of that will be about public health. But what is really interesting with the model is this virtuous circle, because if you improve infant mortality, as we've done brilliantly in uh, high-income countries, you're not much interested in further improvements in infant mortality because you've done so well. When you improve midlife mortality, as we've done in the rich countries too, the better you get, the less interested you are in it. But what's interesting about the aging process is the better we get at aging, the more we're going to value further increases in aging. It's that synergy I was saying earlier about health and life expectancy. So we've now got a situation where the majority of the young can expect to become the really very old. We're going to therefore see more and more resources thrown into aging well. But it does strike me as being, you know, not just a new reality for individuals, the young have to now prepare to be old, but actually a radical point for humanity. It's a very different approach, isn't it? Targeting ageing itself rather than, as you say, these diseases that we associate with ageing. And another thing you did in the paper, you looked at a study of 41,204 men with type 2 diabetes, average age 75, and you looked at the effect on them of a drug called metformin, which seems to offer protection against several of these age-related diseases. There's an, also an upcoming trial which is going to be using the same drug as a first step in developing effective next-generation drugs. What did you expect to find and what did you find? So in the paper, we look at uh, a drug called metformin. Now, metformin is a really interesting drug. Uh, it's very cheap because it's out of patent. It's very widely used by diabetics to control sugar levels. And near Barzillai uh, in the Albert Einstein College in New York is doing a massive trial called the TAIN trial because there's some evidence based on uh, diabetics that actually it just leads to really good outcomes in terms of reducing uh, ageing and age onset of age-related diseases and even mortality. I should hasten to add here that the results look interesting, but there hasn't yet been a proper uh, you know, five-star study of the impacts of metformin. But near Barzillai is running one, and it's going to be much looked after, because imagine if you could get a, a cheap drug you took every day, like statins, that would actually help ward off some of the effects of ageing. You can imagine the impact it will have. So we just looked at one particular study that said, OK, based on uh, diabetics, this is the impact of taking metformin on various age-related diseases. And then we took those results and said, well, let's imagine they're true. And I stress, you know, we don't know if it's true. Let's see uh, what the gains are from slowing down ageing through metformin compared to just, you know, eradicating cancer or eradicating arthritis or cardiovascular diseases. And what you find, the gains are huge compared to even eradicating cancer. 
the gains to slowing aging in this way are really, really substantial in dollar terms. If you target single diseases, it's fantastic to make progress in reducing the incidence of cancer and increasing the survival rates of cancer. But there's still lots of other age-related diseases. Whereas if you can slow down aging, you have an impact across many different diseases, which gives a benefit, but also it increases your health at every age, not just your survival by more. So the gains are enormous. So drugs focused on having an impact on biological aging, however fantastical they may seem, there's pure research in the lab that says it can be done with certain animals. And there's also this economic value to it as well compared to treating single diseases. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting, isn't it? So rather than looking at the effects of ageing and trying to fix those, you're actually looking at the causes and trying to do something about that. Exactly. And, you know, you can see the logic. And again, I want to stress that the, you know, how we slow down biological ageing is not all about the scientific treatments. I suspect if we're going to make major breakthroughs in terms of how we age and how long we live for it, it will definitely come through the science. But yeah, we need to think about aging differently. We have to focus on biological age and how we manipulate it. We have to recognize that aging is malleable, which of course with biological age, it's easier to accept. With chronological age, we forget. But also we have to recognize that this aging society issue is putting things in a wrong way because we focus on how do we look after all these old people. Whereas for me, the most important imperative is to focus on how do we make the current young and middle-aged the healthiest ever future old. Uh, and that's, of course, what this focus on biological aging makes you realise. So for people listening who might be policymakers or running businesses or working in businesses, what are the implications of all of this in terms of how we should be structuring our working lives ourselves and also when we're looking at human resources? I mean, this obviously fits in to a very wide range of research programs that I'm working on, which is how do we adapt and rethink in response to longer lives? We've got to move away from the negativity of an aging society story. We have to move away from a focus that aging is just about end of life and how we support end of life. Those things are important, but we have to take a longevity perspective. And of course, that is about rethinking our careers. But let me come back to what I think is the really big commercial part of this paper. I read a lot about what I call the silver economy, which is the rising number of people aged over 65. And, you know, I, lots of this is one way people try and get firms interested in an aging society. How much do you really know about your market? It's getting more and more aged over 65. And most firms don't understand that market. And to the extent they do, there's a silver economy, which is about providing products for old people. Now, I think that is important. But actually, again, I think this to misunderstand what is really happening, which is this change in the life course. And the 100 Life book said, look at the stats, you might live a long time, you need to rethink your work and your career. Because it's not just your work and your career, you've got to think about how to prepare for a longer life. One of the things that developed in the 20th century was a life insurance industry, which said, hey, there's a danger you're going to die in middle age, Let's make sure your finances are okay for your family if that happens. What we've got with these longer lives is almost a need for longevity insurance. How do you make sure that you don't outlive your health, your relationships, your skills, your work and your finances? And I'm going to call that what I call the evergreen economy. But 
If you think about you as an individual, what everyone always says about a long life is I don't want to be unhealthy, lonely, or, you know, unproductive when I get old. I want to be engaged and happy and healthy. So the most important thing is to age well. It's true we will be prepared to spend a lot of money when we're old to be looked after, but people will spend even more money to make sure that they're healthy when they're old. And that's the money you spend before you get old. So rather than focus on the silver economy, uh, my focus is what I call the evergreen economy. How can we make sure that we can tap into this all's well that ages well? And that's going to be an enormous market opportunity because what we show in the paper is the multi-trillion dollar value of ageing well to individuals. We've seen with COVID just how much people are prepared to do to keep their health in the face of a terrible illness. So the Evergreen Society says, okay, you're living longer life. What's the most important thing to do to be healthy for longer? That's the evergreen economy. So what is that about? Well, of course, it could be pharmaceutical products which focus on the aging process itself rather than intervening for particular diseases like cancer. And when you talk about the evergreen economy, so we're not just looking at things like, you know, new pharmaceutical products and those kind of opportunities which are focusing on the aging process itself. It's more than that. Yeah, it's about the food and drink industry, making sure that actually your products are actually promoting health rather than reducing health. We've seen many of the major food producers the last couple of years recognise how limited the health benefits are from what they produce. It's also about things like education. If you look at the impact on an individual level that help you age well, exercise is phenomenal, education is phenomenal. So there's a huge evergreen economy that will develop that will tap in to making sure that we age well. That's not about a silver economy and providing care at the end of life. That is important. That is going to get bigger. But the really multi-trillion dollar sector, the one that we're going to be most interested in, is how does the current young and middle-aged maintain health as they get older? And that's really positive, isn't it? Because all of these are things that we, we do have some control over, how we invest in relationships and our fitness and nutrition, education. So perhaps that will take some of the fear out of ageing. Totally. It means that there are things that you can do to prepare for your future. You just need to do it differently from past generations. Certainly resonated very well amongst people. And I think, you know, again, that's what we have to try and do, whether it's individuals, firms or governments. We have to get people to understand that actually, you know, surely the fact we're living longer on average are healthier for longer is good news. How do we seize the opportunities? But how do we prepare ourselves differently? From the first time ever in human history, a 20-year-old can now, with 50% probability, expect to become an 80- or a 90-year-old. That requires doing things differently. It requires the importance of recognising how we age is key and recognising that actually it's too late to worry about how we age when we're old. That's a massive new shift in people's framework but it is also exciting because it creates potential and there's definitely things that you can do um, now that improve your future chances. Thanks Andrew. Thank you. It's really useful to think about shifting our thinking around longevity. We're not looking at elderly people being a drain on the rest of us. It's really important for us as individuals to recognise there are things we can all do now to improve our own chances of a decent old age which ultimately is also better for everyone. It's a win-win. Excellent. The Why podcast is brought to you by the editorial team at Think at London Business School. Follow us here for more episodes on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more faculty research insights, go to london.edu forward slash think. 
You can also sign up there for our free regular email newsletter to get tips, tools and news for alumni direct to your inbox. And finally, don't forget to leave us a review or rating. That helps new listeners find us. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Thank you.